You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Gemara. I'm going to read to you the Gemara, and again, try to bear with me in understanding that there's so many great things that are hidden within this Gemara if we just um, go further than the surface. The Gemara asks, Moshe min HaTorah minayin. Where do we find Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah? As if I'm going to be searching the whole Torah and I won't be able to find Moshe. So let me tell you where Moshe is. Because in Parshas Bereshis, where Hashem says, I've had enough of these humans who are doing all these terrible things, we should wipe them out, we should destroy them. But, because we feel bad for them, Beshagam hu basar, Meaning, although they are, so you know what, I'm going to give them 120 years. So the word Bishagam, base Shin, Gimel Mem, is 345, which is the same numerical value as Moshe. That's where Moshe is. Now, Rashi tries to explain this Gemara somewhat, and he says that the question of where is Moshe is more of where can we find a prophetic allusion of Moshe's coming before Moshe actually comes. And since it says, Bishagam hu basar, and it'll be 120 years, we know Moshe lived to 120, so it's a remez that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be. But why are we looking for Moshe Rabbeinu to appear earlier in the Torah? In case you thought that this was, Gemara carries on. Haman minat Torah minayin. Where do we find mention of Haman in the Torah? Hamin ha'etz. Because Hashem says to Adam Arishon, who told you that you don't have clothes? Is it from the tree? Did you eat from that tree? So that, did you eat from the tree? Hamin ha'etz. Hamin is spelled Nun, which is the same letters as Haman. There is Haman. Esther minatoru minayin. Where is Esther in the Torah? Banochi haster astir. I will hide my face. Astir is Esther. Mordechai minatorah minayin, this is probably the hardest one. Where is Mordechai written in the Torah? The chsiv, when it lists all the ingredients for the anointing oil, it, one of them is called Mordoror, which is wild more, which we'll discuss hopefully later what that is. Umetargaminan, and the targum on that word is Miriadachya, which is pure more. But Miriadachya, Miradachia is Mordechai. It does sound like Purim Torah, doesn't it? From a simple reading. Maybe it sounds like that. But the Maharsha, the Maharsha, the prim- primary commentary on the Agadaic teachings of the Gemara, tries to give an explanation within the realm of Remez for what this Gemara... He explains like this. There are four people who seem to be misnamed. You may have been bothered by who put together Moshe with Mordechai and Esther and Haman. One person from the Torah, three people from the Megillah. He says, because these are four people who are referred to in Tanakh by the wrong name. Moshe had many Jewish names, including beautiful names like Tovia and Avigdor. These are names by which Moshe is referred to in other places. 
And yet, we name him Moshe, seemingly some Egyptian name, given to him by the Egyptian princess. And throughout the Torah, Hashem refers to him as Moshe. Hashem never refers to him by his nice Jewish name. This is especially important, considering that one of the merits of the Jewish people was that they maintained their Jewish names, and they and here we have the Torah itself is favoring the name given to him by an Egyptian. Haman appears in the Megillah earlier in the Megillah under the name Memuchan, according to the opinion that Memuchan is Haman, and yet. As soon as we, we don't even introduce him and we just switch his name to Haman, wouldn't it be easier for us if we would keep the same identities throughout and refer to him as Memuchan? Mordechai, we're told by our sages, um, had a, a Jewish name as well. His name was Psachia. Psachia is a very nice Jewish name. Mordechai seems to be a Persian name. And Esther, I mean, the Megillah itself tells us, Vahi Omein es Hadassah, he was raising this young girl called Hadassah. Hadassah is a Jewish name. Esther is a Persian name, the, based on, you may be familiar with the, with the uh, goddess um, of, of a similar name, um, as not Esther, but Istar, but, and, uh, and it's related to the word for the moon, and it's a, it's a Persian name, which... Now, it's a Jewish name, and it's uh, about as Jewish a name as it gets, but she had a name Hadassah. Why does the Megillah favor the name Esther over the name Hadassah? And that's what the Gemara is telling you. The Gemara is saying, Moshe Torah Minayin, not where can we find Moshe in the Torah, but wh- why, for what reason, is Moshe referred to? Here are these four characters who seemingly are given the wrong name. And it is interesting, fascinating even, that out of the four people in Tanakh who seem to be called by the wrong name, it's interesting that three of them are in the Megillah. As we know, the Megillah is all about revelations and identities and concealments. So it makes sense that three of the four characters who incorrectly get their names changed would be in the Megillah. Anyway, back to the Marsha. So he says that the Gemara is trying to answer this question with a clever allusion, with a clever remez. We know that the world was created so that the Torah would be observed. As we've discussed in these parashiyas, Hashem created the world so that He can be the king and there can be... Originally, it was supposed to be all of mankind. But mankind refused. Mankind refused at the beginning in the door Anish when they created idol worship and then in the generation of the flood when they sinned and they were wiped out except for one. And even then, it could have been all of humanity. But then they went and built a tower of Babel. So humanity chose not to follow in the ways of Hashem. And so Abraham chose this way for his descendants. And we, the Jewish people, received the Torah and became the purpose for creation. The only ones fulfilling the true purpose for creation. This relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people, as the chosen people, as the people who the world was really created for, is most expressed, says the Marashah, at the splitting of the sea. Because 
in Egypt, the Egyptians were being punished for their crimes. But here, this was the Jewish people came to the sea, and they were stuck, and the sea splits. It parts to allow the Jewish people to come, because since they are the purpose for creation, they are masters over creation. So, Moshe Rabbeinu splitting the sea for the Jewish people is a sign that what he has, where the place where he has taken the Jewish people is moved them from just being just regular human beings to being the purpose for creation. And therefore, Moshe, which interestingly enough doesn't mean so much the one who was drawn, but the one who does the drawing. So she prophetically herself misnames him as it's almost like she's naming him the deliverer, but the deliverer through water. And that's why this name is the one that stays, because this name represents Moshe Rabbeinu elevating the Jewish people above creation. So while Tuvia and Avigdor and the other names might have been private names, but Moshe Rabbeinu was bigger than just his private name. Moshe Rabbeinu transcended that and became the one who delivers the Jewish people, and that's what Moshe means. And he says that Haman had a name of Muchan. That was his name given to him. But Haman was so much more than that. Haman alludes to the fact that he represented the serpent, that he was the Amalekite, the, 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 the branch of Esav, which chose to come out and fight against the Jewish people. The people who are so wicked that they represent all evil as if they are the continuation of the source of evil, the serpent within the Garden of Eden. So we'd prefer his name Haman, which may have been a secondary name given to him, or a Persian name given to him, because that alludes to more the essence of what he represented, rather than just the name given to him by his parents at birth. Esther had a name Hadassah, but like we're saying, she became bigger than just her personal, individual identity. She represented... Her and Mordechai both transcended just their private lives and became the Goalim, the redeemers of the Jewish people. And so Esther has a name which represents the Hester Panim, Hashem hiding his face, as if she represents the troubles that the Jewish people went through. While Mordechai represents the Besamim, the Maridachia, the pure myrrh, the um, anointing oil, the positive aspect of the Jewish people, and so it represents. So even though he had a name Psachin, she had a name Adasa, the Megillah prefers the names which represent them as being greater, even though these are Persian names, but what they represent is something greater. And the Marsha adds an interesting point. He says, um, Esther represents the concealment of Hashem's face. Why did Hashem conceal His face from the Jewish people? Because they turned away from Hashem. What incident represents the turning away um, from Hashem? Participating in the feast. 
Exactly. The reason why the Megillah starts with and he made a party is because the Jewish people felt that fitting in and working and going along with what the king demanded of them, even though the vessels of the Beis Hamikdash were being used at that party, even though this represented an insult to the Jewish people, they went along and the language of the Gemara is very, very exact. The Gemara doesn't just say because they attended the feast. The Gemara says, they enjoyed it. They benefited. They took pleasure. They had a good time at the feast which represented the fact that the Beis Amigdash was not being built, the downfall of the Jewish people. But we know Mordechai didn't attend the feast. Even if he attended, he attended only as a worker there and he he tried to control the situation, whatever the different the different midrashim. But certainly, he did not benefit from the feast. He tried to convince the Jewish people not to go, and those people who followed him, Mordechai is the besamim rosh, Mordoror, the head of the besamim, the head of the people who did, thought better, the people who did not um, benefit from the party of Achashverosh and Haman. And, Marsha adds this, also he represented those people who many years before did not bow down to the idol of the Vuchadnezar, which was a previous sin that the Jewish people were being held accountable for. So again, says the Marsha, that's the explanation of this Gemara. Not where can we find Mordechai, Haman, Esther, Moshe in the Torah, but rather where in the Torah can we understand why they have these given names. But if we, if we may, we'd like to take this a lot deeper, especially, now I don't know how deep we can usually go, but for Purim there's no limitations, so um, stop me if I'm uh, getting too far ahead of myself. The Bnei Saskar, which is one of the primary Sfarim, and trying to understand the Yamim Tovim um, from a Hasidic perspective and to get a deeper understanding, quotes from Rav Chaim Vital, the great student of the Arizal. And hear this out. We've said this many times in our class, the tributaries of Eden, that everything goes back to Eden. All of the Torah emanates, flows from the Garden of Eden. And all of our stories can trace themselves back to the great event, the Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden, and how they included within that challenge, within that situation, all the future challenges that we would face. He says, there's an opinion in the Gemara that the Eitz Adas was a grape vine. It was a but instead of grapes growing with juice inside, like we have, which you have to then take that juice, squeeze it out, and let it ferment within a certain process, and you have to protect it and guard it and do everything you need to do in order to turn it into wine. And even then, most people don't do such a good job of turning it into wine, right? unless you're willing to pay for it. In those days, the original plan was that the Garden of Eden had grapes in it, and those grapes were filled with wine made by God Himself. It was called the Eitz Hadas, the Tree of Knowledge, 
because there was an intoxicating wine, the wine of Torah. That wine, the yayin yasamach levav enosh, the wine that would bring joy to the heart. The wine which the Gemara tells us makes us wise. This was the pill which had within it the knowledge of all the great secrets of the world. And the Arizal tells us that they were supposed to eat from the Eitzadas. They were supposed to drink that wine. But they were supposed to make Kiddush. Wait till Shabbos. When their bodies were holy enough to be able to handle that wine. But they didn't wait. They did it too early. They did it according to one version of the language. They did it while it was not yet ripe. Now, was the time not ripe or the fruit was not ripe? And instead of it making them wiser, it corrupted them and confused the knowledge of good and evil. And so we are constantly, constantly facing that same challenge of being drawn towards the evil, to be drawn towards misusing and corrupting all the resources that we are given and using them for the wrong thing. And of course, if this was a discussion, if this was a discussion of Shabbos, we would now have a lengthy discussion on the meaning of Kiddush and Havdalah based on this understanding of the sin of the Eitz Hadas. But we're not discussing Shabbos, we're discussing Purim. The Jewish people faced an example of that challenge when the representative of the serpent, Haman, and the fellow representative of the serpent, Achashverosh, called out to the Jewish people and said, come and eat from my tree. Come and take pleasure in its benefits. It's okay. You can touch. Look, you touched. You didn't die. You can come to the party. We'll have all the kosher food. We're going to have a kosher ambiance. We're going to have everything kosher except the fact that they're not supposed to be there because the Torah says they're not supposed to be there because the sages of the Torah told them not to be there. And the Jewish people went. The Jewish people went and they benefited. They took pleasure in the party of Achashverosh. What was being served at the party of Achashverosh? The hashtia kadas ein ones. The drinking was unlimited. Whatever you want. Because that's the promise of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When you drink this, you'll be like God, knowing, knowing whatever you want to know. Come, enjoy all the pleasures of this world, and it'll make you wiser and greater. That's the invitation. And the Jewish people fell for it. And now it became the role of Adam and Chava, or shall we call them Mordechai and Esther, to try to f- correct this situation. So Esther comes back as Chava. Esther is, her job is to try to fix this situation. So Mordechai says to her, you need to go before the king. She says, go before the king, have a discussion with the king, 
Isn't that me, once again, trying to debate the serpent? Because that's what, that's what goes wrong. If when the serpent shows up and says, Hey, how are you doing? How's things in the garden? Chava would have said, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Could you come back another time? We would have a different tale of history. It's because he opens with a conversation very cleverly and says, so, so is it true you're not supposed to eat any of the trees? And she says, no, 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 we can eat from the tree. We, um, we can eat from all the trees, but from the, the Eitzadas, we're not supposed to eat it or touch it. He says, really, you can't touch it. He pushes her against the tree. There, and the Gemara tells us that the Nachash was Baal Chava. He had a relationship with Chava. And he... Um, filled her with the zuama, with this poison, with this impurity, with this contamination. And as most commentaries learn, it means that because he intellectually entered her mind, he took his corrupted thought process and put it into her mind, now when she eats, that's what fills her, and she is poisoned. It's only when the Jews stand by Harasinai, and that zuama is removed from them, by standing at the tree, at, at the mountain, and then the Jewish people were freed. Of course, they messed it up again with the sin of the golden calf, which we'll come back to soon. So she says to Mordechai, I should go before the king, willingly? And she uses that famous statement, fine, I'll go. But kasher, avadati, avadati. So everyone, so what does that mean? As I'm lost, I'm lost? So says the Bnei Sasra, quoting from the Rechaim Vital, it means kasher avadati the same way I lost myself last time as Chava. By getting into this discussion with the serpent, so too I will be lost now. But instead, we know Hashem tells the snake, amar, because you did this, Eva Ashis, I will create enmity, between who? Between the woman and you. That's Esther and Haman, that confrontation. Where who Yeshuv Harosh, where he will smash your head. That's Esther defeating Haman, and Haman is hanged on the tree. That's the um, Chava taking vengeance upon Haman. That's what Reb Chaim tells us. So the Bnei Yisachar, quoting this Rebchaim Vital, says that we know that during the original sin, Chava listened to the serpent. She saw the tree. She touched the tree. She tasted the food. There was one sense that we do not find anywhere in that story. Well, she heard, she listened to this, to the snake. The sense of smell. It doesn't say in the Torah that she smelled the tree and the waft overwhelmed her. The sense of smell was not used in the original sin. And that's why our sense of smell was never corrupted in that way. And that's why the sense of smell is actually connects more to your neshama than it does to the, to the goof. And that's why when the neshama Yaseira leaves on, on Matzah Shabbos, um, the body 
feels kind of, but it's really the neshama that's suffering because the neshama Yisera left and your neshama feels empty. It feels like there's a void. And so in order to make your neshama feel somewhat better, we take besamim and we make a borei mina besamim and that, even though maybe we're too much in touch with our bodies to truly understand how our neshama is uplifted through it, but that's, that's what happens to us. We, um, I, our neshama feels better. That's why we smell besamim on Matzah Shabbos. And that's actually the reason why some smell besamim on Friday night also. Because since um, the neshama Yisera is here, we want to give it some pleasure. And so we give it a good smell. And if this were a discussion about Shabbos, we would spend more time talking about creating this smell during Kiddush Navdal. But it isn't. It's a class on Purim. So we're going to talk about it more in the context of Purim. The Gemara tells us in Shabbos, Daflam and Gimel, that Rav Shimabar Yochai and his son were walking. And they, you know, everyone knows the whole story, they were upset because people were doing work and they were and they ended up going back to the cave and then they come back out. Roshim Yochai is better, but his son Rabbi Elazar is still bothered when he sees people working and involving themselves with matters of this world until they see a Jew walking with two Hadassim. On Friday afternoon they ask him what are these for? And he says, Cause you smell it on Friday night. So they say, Well why two? He says, once for Zachor and once for Shamor. So of all smells, what's the appropriate smell to give to the neshama? Hadassah. That's Esther. So Esther comes back in the form of the queen, in this case representing Chava, and finding that one place where the Jewish people did not suffer with the blemish the sense of smell, or Hadassah, who represents that Kedusha, which is still maintained because the sense of smell was not impacted in this way. And therefore, she's the one to save the Jewish people. And of course, therefore, Mordechai is not just Mordechai, but Maridachia, the first of the ingredients in the anointing oil. He is this pure myrrh with this powerful scent because they are coming through the power of the um, sense of smell that was not impacted by... So even though they were actually fixing this by not benefiting from the party of Achashverosh, by not partaking in it, but they represented... Not just the sense of smell, but the part or the sections of the Jewish people who are willing to rise above and not partake of the sin, much like the sense of smell did not partake in the case of the Garden of Eden. So incredibly, if you enjoy a good gematria, there's 11 spices in the Ketoros. One of them, we know, smelled awful. The Chalbana, Galbanum. Chalbana smells awful. So what was it doing in the Ketoros? Because it represents the people who smell bad, spiritually speaking. It's the people who are Rishayim, wicked people. And we're told, Gemara tells us, that if you have a fast, if you have a prayer that doesn't have in it 
the um, sinners of the Jewish people, it's not considered a good fast. It's not considered a real prayer. The Gemara says, you know how we know this? Because the chalbana, this foul-smelling spice, is included in the Ketores. Do a quick count with me. Chalbana, Ches Lamed Beis Nun Hei, 8, 32, Add all that together and you get 95. Which is the exact numerical value of Haman. Haman represents the Chalbana, he represents the foul smell. He, what he did to the Jewish people was cause them to sin to benefit from. So, come Mordechai, representing Mare Dachia, this, um, this myrrh which has this amazing scent, and Esther, who is the Hadassah, who represents the sense of smell which did not become corrupted. And they are the opposition to Haman, who represents the Chalbana. That's what the Bnei Yisachar says. But isn't the Chalbana, when we talk about it, representing it something, it represents the Jews who are sinners. Right, so I think in this case what he means is he represents those people who are influenced by Haman. Meaning Haman got the Jews to bow to him, he got the Jews to benefit from the party. They are more they've become more like the Chalbana. And it's interesting that on Sukkot, even though this is not a class on Sukkot, it's a class on Purim, but for Purim, you can tie everything together and just call it Purim Torah. So um, on Sukkot, we know that the Lulav represents the Jews with Torah and no mitzvahs. The um, Esrug represents the Jews with Torah and mitzvahs. The Aravas represent the uh, people without either. But the Hadas represents the Jews with uh, mitzvahs but no Torah, because they have that great smell. The Hadas, because the smell represents the doing of mitzvahs. And so those who would be without that would be more like the Arava, represented by the Chalbana. But if I may, I'd like to take this a little bit deeper. The Tefer Shlomo of Radomsk says that Purim always falls during Parsha's Kisisa, which is really next week's Parsha. But in order that we don't miss it, we actually read Kisisa for Parsha Shkalim, at the, which comes before Adar. And the opening line that Hashem uses to tell Moshe to count the Jewish people is Kisisa Esrosh, you will lift up the heads of the Jewish people. What does that mean? So the Tiferet Shlomo says an amazing, amazing explanation. It is the job, it is the role, it is the responsibility of the leaders of the Jewish people to bear the burden of the sins of the Jewish people of their generation. If the Jewish people sin, it is the fault, it is the responsibility of the leaders. And this is true in many cases. There are certain exceptions. But in most cases, the, it, the, the, it falls on them. And therefore, because they bear that responsibility, they are also represent the responsibility to defend and look out for the good of the people of their generation. There is no leader in the history of the Jewish people who did this more than Moshe Rabbeinu. He did this when Hashem says to him, let me erase these people, I'll rebuild from you. He says, Don't just kill me. 
Erase me. Wipe me out. Mecheni na mesifracha. Who else do we use that word mecheni or macho? Like we do by Amalek. Macho timcha. Moshe says, if you are going to destroy these people, erase me like you would an Amalekite. Take me out of the book. That sense of Mesiris Nefesh, of the giving of himself, for the sake of the Jewish people, that is what Moshe Rabbeinu represents. That's a true leader of the Jewish people. Not, what can I tell the people to do? What can I do for these people? And you look at the whole Torah is like that. Every step of the way, Moshe Rabbeinu, maybe a few times he throws up his hands in frustration, and even there the commentaries explain why in those cases. But in most other cases, Moshe Rabbeinu is giving everything of himself for the people. Without complaint. At one point he says, I don't understand what these people want. I haven't taken anything from anyone. I never asked anyone for anything. Like, what are these people's problems? And he still represented them and defended them every step of the way, even when they were coming out against him, against Moshe himself. You know who else does that? Mordechai and Esther. Esther especially. When Mordechai says, go before the king. If you think about it, this, how long had the decree been around? A couple of days. Maybe a day. Maybe less. How much time did they have? 11 months. She hasn't been called before the king in 30 days. So she's due. She'll be called soon. Why go now? We've got plenty of time to do it. And it's even counterproductive because you're risking the king being upset at her showing up unbidden and he might kill her and you lose your queen in the hole. It, It would make much more sense to wait. Okay, now if another month or two goes by and still hasn't called, which wouldn't make sense. Okay, so then we have no choice. We have to go, we have to go before the king. But it's only been a day. We've got 11 months. Let's wait and not take that risk. And Mordechai says to her, no, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because this is about the way that the leader of the Jewish people represents the responsibility of protecting the people. There is no tomorrow. There is no in 10 minutes from now. A leader is someone who immediately responds to the needs. Moshe Rabbeinu responded in that way. And Mordechai is teaching Esther. He's saying, the Revach Vatsala, the Jewish people will be saved. You'll be lost. You need to go right now. And Esther says, okay, let's do it. Here's the process. We're going to do fasts, we're going to do this, and then I'm going. And if I'm lost, I'm lost. But I'm going to risk my life for the sake of the Jewish people. Says the Teferis Shlomo. That's actually what causes the miracle. An amazing pshat. An amazing pshat. The reason why the Jewish people are saved is because Esther says, for the sake of the Jewish people, I'm going. And that act of selflessness, 
of Mesiris Nefesh, of giving herself for the sake of the Jewish people, that's the greatest merit that the Jewish people needed. Because what was their problem? What was their fault? Uh, the attending the party, the indulgence, the self-interest. What it needed was this act of a sacrifice that was not just um, when the miracle occurred, but that's actually what brings and causes the miracle to happen. Which is the exact opposite of the approach of Haman. Haman comes out of that party at the top of the world. The top of the world. Second from the top of the world. He was invited to a private banquet, to a private party with Esther and Achashverosh, the king and queen of the world. 127 provinces. He walks out and Mordechai, who won't bow to him, is sitting there. And Mordechai's presence mocks him. So we've all had such an experience as that person who bothers you and irks you and irritates you. But for people like Haman, he comes home. This is in the Megillah. This isn't Midrash. He comes home and he says, I have this and I have that. And I have this and I have that. And... I was the only one invited to a private party between the king and the queen. And then he says one of the most incredible things in the whole world. All this is worth nothing to me. Not, you know what, I still have a problem. There's something that bothers me though. All this is worth nothing to me. The richest man in the world who can afford to throw out 10,000 talents of silver is bothered by this Jew to the point where all his money is worthless. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if you had access to all the resources in the world except for one tree. Haman is Hamin Ha'etz. Seriously? Says Hashem to Adam. That one tree? You have so much that you have. The one thing you didn't have and you had to, you, you fell for that? Hamin Ha'etz? Really? From that one tree? You had all the trees in the Garden of Eden? It's a big garden? You didn't need to sit by this tree? This one tree you had to take from, the attitude of I need to have and I can't go without. You wonder the kind of world that we live in because this is a world where I have to have the newest, the best. And I feel somehow <coughs> that if I don't have 10G or you know, whatever the number they're up to now, if I don't have the newest gadget, yeah, I mean, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with gadgets. Gadgets are nice. I'm talking more about the attitude of I have to have, otherwise I'm missing. My life is worth nothing. If my neighbor got the new iPhone before I did, there's a problem with that. That's Hamin Ha'ez. That's V'chol Za'enenu Shovali. 
I don't have what the other person has, and therefore what I have is worthless to me. Selflessness is the salvation for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for the Jewish people, and for the world. And selfishness and the indulgences without control and limitation is the destruction of ourselves, of our families, of our communities, of the Jewish people, and of the world. And in a certain sense, that's what the story is about. And the Suda of Achashverosh representing on one end the need to be at the party, the need to enjoy all the pleasures of the world, and the fasting, and the Messias Nefesh of Esther. When the when the Gemara asks, um, where is Haman in the Torah? It means, where can I find the identity of Haman? That's the, in the Hamin Ha'etz. Where can I find the identity of Esther? It's in the hiding of the face, although it's referring to the hiding of the face of Hashem, but it's the selflessness where I don't need to be out there. I don't need to survive this. I'm going to risk my life for that sake. So while Moshe Rabbeinu... <coughs> is there when Hashem says these people sinned with the golden calf, meaning they brought back the Yetzir Hara. The Yetzir Hara, they were free. They were freed from that Zuama, from that poison. And they brought it back within ourselves. I will wipe them out and we will rebuild from you. Moshe does the most unselfish act in the whole history of the Jewish people and says to him, Ayin, wipe me out like you would wipe out Amalek. I want nothing to do with anything that is self-serving, that I would somehow benefit from. That's not what I want. I want to give my life for the sake of the Jewish people. So in a certain sense, Moshe Rabbeinu's name not appearing in the parsha because he said, If not, erase me from your book. It's not just a punishment. It's not just a, a um, curse come true. But it's also... Hashem allowing Moshe Rabbeinu to express his selflessness, where my name doesn't need to appear. When Moshe says, send through someone else, send someone else, I don't need to be the one that redeems the Jewish people, as long as the Jewish people are redeemed. And so he loses the Kahuna Gedola, he loses um, that right because he is saying, I don't need to take that part. And in a certain sense, maybe Moshe doesn't want to be the Kohen Gadol because he doesn't want anyone to think or doesn't want to gain somehow benefit from having been the Redeemer of the Jewish people. And Hashem grants him that and says, you know what? We'll give the Kohen Gadol to someone else because Moshe doesn't want the credit. He doesn't want the applause. He doesn't want the acclaim. And that's the source of the salvation for the Jewish people. That's the concept of of um, selflessness that brings about redemption. Not just, but actually causes the redemption of the Jewish people. That's why on Purim, we drink Adeloyada. Because we're too much into ourselves. 
We're too much into our opinions and our understandings. And sometimes we need a reset. We need to check ourselves. We need to allow all these shows, all these interests, all these... um, Because, you know, somebody who's lost their mind in intoxication, in inebriation, has no interest in the newest iPhone. We need to let go of the controls of these falsities that we've placed into our mind. But if I may, I'd like to take this a little bit deeper. The more the roar, if you look in the Torah, it actually gives, was the, the measure of it was 500 shekel. And the Tefer Shloma adds that in Shushan, they killed 500 people. It says because the Zechus of Mordechai, who represents the Mordechai, who represents the Mur, um, which was 500, so therefore, in you say this in the Megillah, and then you list the 10 sons of Ammon. And then he adds to this something amazing. What is Mordechai? So, the many, the Ramban, for example, the, the Ravid, they learn that it's referring to Mur. But the Rambam says that Mordoror is musk. Musk comes from a non-kosher animal. Says, or even if it um, comes from the blood, whatever the situation, but the, the way that it seems, it comes from a non-kosher animal. Says the Ravid, I don't understand. In the Shemen HaMishcha, in the anointing oil which we sprayed on the Mishkan, we put in a secretion from a non-kosher animal? Says the Tiferet Shlomo. You know what the Rambam's opinion is? Yes. Because the Koach of Mordechai, the power of Mordechai, is to undo the original sin the sin of the Eitz Hadas. We live in a world where there's a confusion of good and evil between the permitted and the prohibited, between the kosher and the non-kosher, between the Tameh and the Tahor. But the power of Mordechai and of Esther is to begin a process which fixes the world, which removes the Das. What's the language we use? Adelo Yada. Until you no longer have any Eitzadas in your head. Until you can no longer tell the difference between Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai, meaning until you come to a place where there is no good and evil. There is just good in the world, which is actually what this world is all about. There is only good. But in the world that we've allowed to crumble and to break apart, we've allowed for a confusion of good and evil. We, when we drink Ampurim, we're not drinking our wine. We're squeezing the grapes and pulling out the Yayin HaMeshumar Ba'anav of the grapes of the Garden of Eden, and we're having that cup of wine, and we are losing our mind, we're losing the confusion of good and evil. Or, if you don't drink, there's some people who sleep instead, whatever you do in order to pass in this halacha of Ad Loyada, 
But the purpose is not so much the intoxication as much as it's the realization that Purim is the undoing of the um, sin of the Eitz And that's why it says, After the story of the Purim miracle, all these people converted to Judaism. Because the purpose of our going out into the world of our exiles, according to the Gemara, is because there are souls lost in the world that are part of the souls that were lost when Adam and Chava ate from the Yitzhadas. And we have to collect these sparks. We have to fix the world and elevate the world. And by the story of Purim, because Mordechai and Esther, through the sense of smell, through the Messiah's Nefesh, through the giving of themselves, they fixed the world. And all of a sudden, all these people converted. That's why the Chalbana, this foul-smelling spice, comes into the Ketores. Because the power of the Mishkan, of the Beis HaMikdash, is to bring us back to the Garden of Eden and take even the foul-smelling Chalbana and elevate it to this very high place. I always say this, and I should say it again tonight. Purim is not a day of just having fun. Purim is a day of a very difficult avoda. We have to feel at the end of Purim the way that we feel at the end of Yom Kippur. And even higher. At the end of Purim we have to feel higher than we do at Yom Kippur. Because while Yom Kippur is the Jewish people trying to fix the sin of the golden calf, Purim is the Jewish people trying to fix the sin in the Garden of Eden. May we merit that through the performance of the mitzvahs, through our proper intentions, and through our learning the lessons of Mordechai and Esther, through becoming less selfish, and more looking out for the sake of others and for the sake of the Jewish people, may we merit to have an elevated Purim, a Purim that lifts us up beyond our confusions, beyond our corruptions, and may we merit to once again return to the Garden of Eden in a world fixed, in every sense of that word, Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.